Today's podcast is brought to you by Elenco Animal Health and Kelly's Finance. Hello, I'm Kerry Lunigan. Welcome to the Weekly Grill. Today, rural property. What's happening and where are the values headed? And who better to answer the questions than Tim Lane from Heron Todd White. Tim Lane, welcome. You're on the grill at Beef Central. Thanks, Gary. Pleasure to be here. Look, we last spoke uh, around 12 months back and we posed the same question. Is real property still the hot ticket for investors? Oh, look, absolutely the data of um, you know, the last 12 months, but really it's the last you know, three to five years. Um, there's just been an explosion in, in the values. Um, you know, everyone's with a bit of FOMO out there, Kerry. I'm missing out. Property comes onto the market. Plenty of buyer interest. Um, and look, it's almost is that perfect storm, hasn't it been? Good commodity prices, generally pretty good seasons in most areas. Um, you know, the interest rate market being the cheapest it's ever been. And um, you know, cash flows have been positive. Um, and then there's new capital in the market. So all of that coming together, um, people have uh, you know, spoken with their checkbooks. I don't want to be a wet get that, but there's a lot of chatter and noise in the market about at the moment about interest rates. And the looming shadow of inflation, are they factors as yet? Uh, not as yet, but certainly um, oh, probably the best way to try and understand that and when we uh, looked at our market data, I got the team to look at the last sort of 10 years of sort of price growth. You know, if we looked on a dollar per AE rate or a dollar per DSE rate, etc. And in Victoria, you know, we sort of had over the last 10 years you know, 450 to 500% increases. New South Wales, we were sort of similar that mid 400s. Queensland, you know, 350 odd percent increase in values in that 10 year period. And and I think there's a few interesting things in that. For five years of that, the market largely didn't go too far. Now, you, people will still remember from that 2010 to 2013 14, very flat and indeed negative market in some areas. And then from, you know, 14, 15 onwards, it started to kick up and then it's just taken off. So really, it's a story of 10 years of two lots of five years. But in that same time, with those price increases, carry of you know, 300, 400% relative values. If you look at the cattle market, the ECI and the price of beef effectively as a measure of ECI only went up 180%. If you look at the grain sector, they only went up 25, 30% from the you know, price of wheat 10 years ago per tonne to today. And so the other variable in that is the interest rates, which went from you know their RBA rates 10 years ago were 4.5% down to 0.1%. So you could sort of stand back and say, what's the bigger driver? Is it the cost of money or is it the commodity price? And and the conclusion could be, the well, it's actually the price of money which has driven the market further than the underlying commodity itself. Yes. Just as, a, as a looking at those statistics. I'm looking at inflation, though, in the US around 8% at present. EU, it's 7.5%. In Australia, it's... Uh, allegedly 2.6%. Surely that difference between Australia being a big trading nation, that can't stay like that. We must catch up eventually. Uh, look, the economists will have a much better view um, than I will on that uh, point, Kerry. Certainly, you know, the cost to do business today is much, much tougher in terms of those input costs, you know, fertilisers, freights, you know, chemicals, etc. So the farming, you know, activity this year will be 
you know, I think a challenge for some areas. It will so that be, might take a little bit of yes, momentum out of the system. Absolutely, and the cost of diesel, of course, it's um, not diminishing hardly. That's right, that's right. But then even from the interest rate market, and yes, we're coming off the absolute lows, uh, so the only way is up, you know, and for all implications, it's going to be between 1% and 1.5% over the next several 18 months, depending on you know which bank you listen to. Yes, uh, last time... But within the banking sector, all of the banks have, you know, they do their stress testing and they do their approvals generally with about a 2.5% buffer. Yeah. So you'd sort of think the first, you know, one and a bit percent of the market's going to handle that relatively okay. And I think in isolation, Kerry, it was just interest rates moving. The market's probably still okay if commodity prices stayed up, if fuel prices went down, if input costs came down. I want to have a look at some particular property deals in the last few months shortly, but last time we spoke, there appeared in many cases to be little correlation in big grazing property values when you worked in the DSE factor or the AE factor for cattle. Has this come more into balance in recent times? Yes, they they move at different times for different reasons. There's no doubt about it. You know, if you did the conversion back from cattle to the DSC equivalent and started to rationalise it, it it was a little bit hard to see where the value was for some properties compared to others. I think part of what has happened over the last two and a half years or so is that people are buying to a price point. So they've sort of gone further west. You know, more marginal country from a rainfall perspective, etc., and bought to a price point which has then pushed those prices up relative to some maybe better country uh, in a uh, near more reliable country. So uh, there's no one trend in any one of those areas. We do see at times they get out of balance to each other, driven by just different biases, different fundamental, and look ultimately just a different appetite. Um, but I still feel that that FOMO factor is part of what's driving that marketplace. Tim, the, uh, the the Ukraine situation, we all know the fallout, of course, higher oil prices, a disruption to the grains markets. Is that a factor in any decision-making at present? Not that we've observed, Kerry, no. Uh, and certainly I don't have any any evidence to suggest otherwise at this point. It's, it's, it's sort of rumbling in the background, isn't it? But uh, to, have it, to say it has an effect on property would be a bit of a long bow, I guess. Look, at the moment, certainly, I mean, we haven't seen it translate to the this, you know, bulk cereals and grains market at this point because the shipping uh, issues, as everybody's aware of, if, if, if that created some stimulus, but I suppose there's a short-term impact and then there's what is the medium to longer-term impact. Yeah. And at the moment, unfortunately, given the event, it's a short-term impact for now. It will certainly have pressure in terms of global grain supply uh, and ultimately, Australia should benefit from that over time. But if we can't put it on a boat, it's a bit hard to take the benefit. So we've still got largely domestic pricing influence in the market at the moment. We're talking to Tim Lane from Heron Todd White. Back in a moment after this short message from Elenco Animal Health. Don't let your cattle suffer the setbacks caused by buffalo fly. Combat buffalo fly with Corral, Patriot and Silence insecticidal ear tags. Providing up to four months of long-lasting fly control. Alanco has you covered with a range of ear tags to suit your rotation program. Contact Alanco and find out how you can win the buffalo fly battle now. You're back on the grill with Tim Lane from Heron Todd White. 
talking about rural property values. Tim, another impact question. We're witnessing the rise and rise of the carbon issue. Is there evidence of uh, big investors factoring in this to their future property income and their values at present? Certainly uh, a lot of people are factoring in carbon as an opportunity, Kerry, uh, into their business models. How they take advantage of that and what the implications are of that. Um, you know, it's still a, a bit early in one sense, whilst carbon has been out there for a while at the, you know, the tree, going to burning, uh, reforestation type side. The soil carbon is obviously a different uh, process, which is still to get you know, that level of traction. Uh, there are capital sources that are absolutely looking to invest on a carbon primary play as distinct from the agricultural use as it is today. Uh, and then there are others looking to integrate the two into their business models. We haven't seen too many properties uh, go under a carbon abatement and then subsequently sell at this stage. So there's no real clear evidence of where the market perceives those. But if done well, um, absolutely would be beneficial for a lot of properties and that extra cash flow. And um, as we discussed earlier in the week, the change of the taxation impact of carbon to now be considered primary production income as opposed to non-farm income, that will also be beneficial. So, look, it's here, it's here to stay. Um, a lot of moving parts, as we know. Um, the framework and the policy is still a bit wet on the ink uh, across the board because there's a lot of influences coming in. But yeah. it is no doubt going to and is factoring into a lot of the discussions we are having with clients. Yes, I get the feeling that change from off-farm income to on-farm income is, a, is quite a game-changer. If people were umming and ahhing about whether to do it or not, this uh, change to on-farm income would, would uh, sway them considerably, I suggest. Oh, look, it's, it's another benefit for the primary industry. Um, I think for those that already had established programs and were generating those cash flows, they were pretty happy regardless. Um, the fact that there's now the benefit of the consideration of primary production income, the ability to potentially defer some of that or manage that um, over time, I, I hope that people, if they are tapping into the carbon opportunity, are using some of those cash flows to further invest into their properties to enhance their sustainability, their business models, their infrastructure, uh, because a lot of businesses do need that investment of capital, um, and it's very hard on a year-in, year-out. So if that's done well, I've got no doubt we'll see properties will increase their, their productive capacity as a result. Um, but uh, still... There are um, some risks that people need to be concerned and just be aware of um, and not just all rolling blindly. Exactly. They must be aware, of course, that not all properties are suitable for either soil carbon or carbon carbon tree growing. Look, that's right. I think across the board, the soil uh, carbon opportunity really sort of spans between that sort of 500 to 900 mil rainfall areas. You can sort of draw that picture on the map almost following, you know, great divide down to a point and go in either side of that. So it's not going to suit the marginal and western country uh, on the eastern states and again the eastern country and the western states. So there are opportunities where people can benefit and if they can build those into their business models, be strategic about it and look, great opportunity as part of a viable farming enterprise. But uh, buyer beware, be careful. Absolutely, caveat yeah. emptor. Yes, yes. 
Tim, is the reality now that farming families, and I'm told they still own 95% of the farms in Australia, they're now competing against big corporate investors. So if you if you want to buy your neighbour's block, which is fairly, has been fairly commonplace, you should expect some competition? Oh, look, no doubt, Kerry. And, and we really saw that shift from about 2016, early 17, the, the corporate money sort of pushed into the ad space. Then the mum and dad you know, and the, the very good large uh, family operators started to really step in. Now they are uh, almost at the forefront of a lot of these transactions. And we've seen a lot of that corporate capital start to exit and be purchased back by locals. Um, you know, the, the Westchester uh, selling Macquarie eggs, uh, you know, sold the corporate capital in that one. But we've seen a lot of those larger scale aggregations get purchased and de-aggregated to locals. Um, and we expect to continue to see that uh, where we might have some you know, corporate capital looking to exit at this time in the cycle. They are very active. And look, in all honesty, that's a good sign of a healthy market where it is the local uh, the local market doing the buying. They are you know, well advised. They are funded. Their balance sheets are in good order across the board. Um, so they are they're more active than the corporate in a lot of sense. Let's uh, check some sector values and see how they've been going recently. Are big cattle properties, how they've been faring recently? Oh, look, um, extremely good. Um, you know, the reality is that that cattle market, the, the price for the commodity, for those that have been in, they've seen the capital grow on their own places. They've got good cash flows coming out of the market. There's still the rebuild and everything else, so there's still a lot of interest and demand for cattle operations um, at scale. Um, you know, there's a minimum scale for everything to be viable. But uh, you know, those bolt-on blocks or those other acquisitions, plenty of demand, uh, arguably not enough supply. And everyone wants protein, don't they? which is a good, good sign. Uh, Broadacre Farming, uh, Tim, uh, grain-growing properties, etc., how are they faring? Yeah, uh, probably slightly less active at the moment, Kerry. Uh, and again, it's because of that sort of short-term shift in some of the input costs. You, know, you need to be fairly confident about your ability to grow the yield, um, particularly if you get into some of that more marginal rainfall country, more opportunistic. With the input costs today, people are going to be making some different decisions. So we haven't fully seen it yet, but expect to see a bit of a slowdown in activity in that market um, just over this crop cycle, uh, and then ultimately it sort of depends on whether those input costs start to come back or whether they hold up at the current levels, and um, that might really take a little bit of energy out of that. Sector. Yeah, it's not just diesel prices. The price of fertiliser has gone through the roof in recent months. That's right. You know, all but doubled or slightly better than doubled. So, you know, that really, if you were... 440 bucks per hectare to grow wheat and you're now 600 and something dollars wow. per hectare. You need to know that you're going to get the yield by you know, your average sort of prices or better than average prices. Uh, dairy property again, values uh, Dairy property values appear to be reasonably solid? Yes, certainly the dairy sector has probably been one of the uh, sort of recovery, if you like, stories of the last uh, 18 months in terms of the, uh, the current pricing uh, and the change of the seasonal conditions their input costs have actually gone down because uh, of the rain events that we've had and the ability to, to grow more grass and therefore that drought, that drought feeding hasn't been the same impact. Mm. The dairy is actually in a pretty good space overall at the moment and you know, there's just not as many around. So on yeah. the supply side, 
um, you know, everyone still needs their cup of coffee with their milk. Exactly. Now, look, I'm always interested in those horticulture blocks because they've, they've <laughs> seen, I've seen them go for extraordinary prices. Is that Are they still attracting big money? Uh, still attracting relatively big money, yes, but the prices haven't moved fundamentally a lot in the last 18 months or so, even two years. So they've sort of got to their, their natural cap at the moment. And whether that's avocados, whether it's almonds, what we've still seen, however, Kerry, is a, a lot of capital going into greenfield and brownfield development. So new plantings, whether it's the almonds down south, the macadamias, um, north coast New South Wales, you know, Bundaberg and, and up into Queensland. Citrus is still quite positive. The area or the one sort of permanent planting that is having a hard time at the moment is the, the wine grape sector, uh, given all the... Uh, issues of the last 18 months. So there's been a, a lot of grapes that haven't been picked this season because uh, there is no demand through the wineries for that product. So it's it's got its challenges. Most others have found their sort of their natural uh, cap at the moment. So there's still activity in the market, but pretty well all of the assets have been traded now in a relatively short space of time. So yep. it's about new, new uh, and trying to create value Time for another break from our uh, discussion with Tim Lane on rural property values. Let's hear this brief message from our sponsors, Kelly's Finance. Established since 1988, Kelly's Finance Group have the finance solutions when it comes to agribusiness lending, from property loans and livestock funding to machinery and vehicle finance. They are the experts in arranging finance on behalf of their clients that not only ensures market-leading interest rates, but more importantly, financing that is suited to your agricultural operations, not your lender's bottom line or their preferred security position. With access to an array of specialist and traditional finance providers, there's no job too big or too small for the Kelly's Finance Group team. Contact Kelly's Finance Group today for an independent and confidential discussion on how we can add value to your business moving forward. You're back on the grill with Tim Lane from Heron Todd White talking about rural property values. Yeah, a couple of recent sales attracted my attention, Tim. One was that big station down in southern New South Wales, uh, about 15,000 hectares, a very, very good property in its own right, but it has more than 500 hectares of solar panels gathering or garnering a yearly check of $560,000. Just working out the value, it allegedly went for more than $40 million. That is that is a good deal, I would think. Look, it's interesting, and um, the property you're referring to, again, good-scale uh, agricultural holding in a good location with the benefit of you know, some other... Um, secondary income, so you know, a, a solar farm at that scale with that earning, you sort of strip back the uh, the agricultural land value component, and then have the residual value. Yeah. Look, that's sort of a yield of somewhere around about six or so percent, six or seven percent, depending on how you look at it. Some would even suggest it's finer than that, depending on what you assign to the land values, Terry. So, from a holding income um, without really any operational cost. There's, a, there's money and there is an appetite for those sort of assets. Um, we've had other clients approach us about trying to find just standalone solar solar farms in that sort of scale. Um, and we're very uh, comfortable to talk at those sort of yields or even lower yield values. 
So there is another appetite for that market demand, whether it's solar, wind farm. You know, it, it's to a degree you're equivalent of the gas wells in Queensland from a few years ago. And I think that's where the carbon, we go back to that. Over time, people will look at some of those cash flows and then, you know, there's another cash flow which is a different risk to my agricultural risk. And how can they enhance that or integrate that into their business? Now, on the other side of the corner, another property of interest which was sold recently, Henbury Station, south of Alice Springs. Do you want to briefly tell the story of Henbury Station, Tim, or should I elaborate? More than happy for you to elaborate. It's an interesting story, but isn't it, of uh, an opportunity for a carbon project on a large scale? Just briefly, I'll say in 2010, the federal government gave the property $9 million to restock and create the world's biggest carbon farm. It was in mild terms, a catastrophic failure. It shows something about technology, isn't it, that it, is, that it needs to be proven, that it needs to be active, and it needs to have a future. You can't just go for it because it's innovative and think it might work because this one has, um, has failed completely. Again, I don't have all the finer details about why it didn't uh, succeed. It was obviously very new in terms of the whole carbon market at the, at the time. We're now you know, 10 years down the track. There's a much more mature... Uh, carbon market. Um, there are you know, there's over a thousand uh, registered uh, carbon abatement schemes um, going back to I think towards the end of last year, Terry. So we'll be somewhere the other side of a thousand approved schemes now. So there's better data, better integrity, there's better um, you know, GIS and spatial mapping to be able to help uh, support and verify. I think that's going to be one of the key challenges for that sector broadly going forward. Is it's all good and all sounds great, but how do we get confidence in just the verification of the information um, so that people have a confidence about what they can and cannot trade? Uh, and as I said, you know, there's obviously still some moving parts at the um, you know, legislative level. Obviously, um, the announcement recently of the uh, Agricultural Minister suggesting that if it's a large-scale project of 500,000 or essentially a third of the property area, well, they might want to have a say about what you can and cannot do. So you know, there's still some moving parts in all of this. Maybe it was a bridge too far, far too soon. Look, that's probably, and you know, that's often the case, isn't it? You know, the first in early movers, sometimes it's a competitive advantage, but sometimes it's better just to sit and let a bit of dust settle and then start to work out where the opportunities are. And again, there's no doubt there is opportunity for a well-designed project integrated within a good business model that ultimately, from a value's perspective, has a regard for the end value of the asset. What wouldn't be a good outcome is if people bought the property, you know, in essence, locked it up, threw away the key, took all the, the carbon credits off, and at the end of the project, you've actually got an asset which is a non-viable operational farming asset. Yes, well, to a degree, there's no value in that asset. And so people just have to be careful to look at the whole of the project, including right. what happens at the end, in making their decisions up front. Something to keep an eye on in the future. Now, one last comment, on, please, on uh, Cubby Station. Macquarie Rule has stitched up the remaining 51% it didn't already own. That's a big tick for uh, the future of farming in that area and the confidence of Macquarie in that, in that particular sector as well. Yes, and look, I'm not uh, sort of close to the other than what I've read in the press uh, as well, so I'm not close to the finer details. But I think it is a positive shot in the arm for Australian agriculture broadly and the 
really represents the confidence to invest in the asset class, and whether that's a, a cotton operation the scale of Cubby, as distinct from a you know, cattle operation or a dairy operation. Overall, there is still a really positive appetite for agriculture. You know, it is a legitimate investment asset class today. There is institutional capital, there is international capital, there is domestic capital, there are different forms of capital that are coming into the market which are all positive for agriculture broadly because agriculture needs an investment to continue the growth and expand you know, the $100 billion enterprise uh, that they would like to get the agricultural sector to. So all of that's really positive and I think that decision of Macquarie to take on you know, that additional interest, that just re- represents that overarching positive view of the agricultural asset market as a store of wealth and fundamentally, you know, a, um, a good asset class, let alone the fact that it's full of a lot of good people who do a lot of interesting and good things. Tim, has there been a more interesting time in ag property valuations in the past few years? Uh, that's a great question, Kerry, and the answer is probably no. It's about as um, <laughs> interesting in the potter market as anyone's sort of been involved in. Uh, you've got to go back a long, long time to sort of see the same bullishness in the marketplace, the energy in the sector. But, and, and in all honesty, the question on most people's lips are, well, when does this start to level out? When does the market start to draw breath? And ultimately, then what happens when it does? Um, and that's the question that everyone's pondering that uh, we're still yet to um, yet to see transpire. But combination of rising interest rates, increasing input costs, and if all of those things that push the market along, if they all unwound at the same time, Kerry, that would certainly, you think, shorten the market uh, demand up at least. Tim Lane, I'll check back with you on that uh, next year. It's always great to talk. Tim Lane from Heron Todd White, thank you. Thanks very much, Kerry. And thank you for joining me today. Until next time, I'm Kerry Lonigan, and this is The Weekly Grill, brought to you by Alenco Animal Health and the Kelly's Finance Group.